You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is episode 53, the first episode of 2017, and this is your host, Brian McClanahan. Glad to be back with you. It's been a little while. Glad to be back with the program. And this episode covers the week of January 2nd through January 6th, 2017. So we're back uh, doing our podcast on a weekly basis. And uh, it's good. It's good. Like I said, good to be back in the chair and good to be back behind the microphone. So uh, before we get started, just want to uh, remind everyone that just because we've turned the page on a year and we've gone to a new month doesn't mean that we don't need your support. And I know a lot of people uh, were very generous at the end of the year and helping us out. Uh, but if you're hearing this podcast for the first time and uh, and um, you want to help the Abbeville Institute, then please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the Institute. We exist on your generous contributions alone, so you can go to our website and go up under the top there where it says um, uh, support or contact, and you have uh, membership options. Um, so please consider uh, keeping this podcast going, our website going, our podcasts up and or our, I'm sorry, our uh, programs uh, up and running. Uh, we do need your support. Uh, also, like us on Facebook, uh, follow us on Twitter, go to our YouTube page. Uh, just before uh, the end of the year, we posted a tremendous number of videos on uh, from our uh, two of our conferences last year, one uh, on nullification in Atlanta and the other from our summer school, which was on the Southern tradition and the renewal of America. So all that material is free of charge for you online, which is what also, your generous contribution helps us do and put all that stuff up there. Our website really has become a virtual uh, library of Southern thought, and it's going to get better this year. So we got a lot of good stuff coming up this year, a lot of good material for you. And uh, this week is no exception. Uh, so we had um, a number of pieces. We had five pieces as normal this week. We're back to that schedule. We had a, a couple of weeks there at the end of the year where we weren't doing that for uh, some behind-the-scenes reasons uh, with the website, but we're back at it doing uh, five a week. And so this week, uh, we had some uh, an eclectic mix of things and some things we've, we've been discussing on the website for, uh, for a little while now, and others um, uh, just trying to um, emphasize what is the South. And I think that that is uh, one of the important questions we're going to try to answer this year at the Abbeville Institute. What is the Southern tradition? Uh, we talked about it last year with our summer school. We've done some uh, some conferences on that topic, but we're really going to try to hash that out this year. What is the South? What is the Southern tradition? And why is it important? And um, so we get into that a little bit this week, and we'll be doing more of that as the weeks progress. But uh, the first piece we had this week was uh, by Paul Yarbrough and uh, he's written some great stuff for us recently, and uh, this one was titled CIA, signed CSA, and it's about the uh, issue of California secession, which has become um, front-page news, even on places like the Drudge Report and uh, major newspapers in, in uh, California are talking about California secession, which is remarkable considering that if this was 2009 or 2008 when Barack Obama was elected, and uh, there were people clamoring about secession in the South and the West. That was all seen as purely reactionary uh, nonsense by a bunch of hillbillies who just didn't want to uh, be part of a progressive administration like the Obama administration, and they were all just racist looking to get out because they didn't like a black president. Well, 
Now that California is talking about secession, well, I mean, hey, it's okay. Uh, We've got this evil Donald Trump going to be inaugurated in just a couple of weeks, and so we need to get out of here. Uh, This is uh, going to be a disaster for America, and a progressive state like California cannot be tied in to these uh, yahoos here around the rest of the country. And so let's get out. And so now this has become fashionable. Hey, because California wants to do it, it's okay. Now, uh, Paul uh, Yarbrough talks about that and how this would actually be great for the rest of us if California would just leave. And in fact, when you look at the demographics and the, and the statistics surrounding the issue, if the only reason Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016 is because she got about 2 million more votes in California than anywhere else. And uh, Donald Trump actually won uh, from what I understand, the popular vote in all the other states combined, right? So uh, I think New York actually factored into this a little bit. So you take out New York and California, and Donald Trump's the clear winner of the 2016 election, both in terms of the Electoral College and the popular vote. So it's two states that are really propping up this idea that we need to have the the Electoral College abolished and uh, go to the popular vote. So do we really want to be governed by California and New York? Do 50 states really want to be governed by two states? And I think that's the question. And we've talked about the Electoral College on this uh, on this program and on our website. The Electoral College was put in place to uh, ensure that the states, not the, the populace, would be represented in the executive branch. It was a check on uh, what... Uh, John Randolph of Roanoke called King Numbers. Now, of course, he called it that later, but this is what the founding generation was looking at. Should we be governed by a mere majority of people, the tyranny of the majority, which we saw what happened in France during the French Revolution when you get to that, and people were very scared in the founding generation as to what would happen if you did that here. They thought that, of course, uh, if you had the general population running things, you would have some type of bloody revolution, Um, and they feared that. And so this fear of democracy uh, was uh, an overarching theme in the founding generation for a, lot of, for a lot of the members of the founding generation. However, they also understood that the states were the principal components of this government, and so the states had to be part of the process for electing your chief executive. And not only that, when you look at... Um, uh, the way the Constitution was designed, and of course we have a, a piece on that later in this week, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, when you look at that federalism, you know the states were still the the most important component of the United States government. It was still a federation of states, a federal republic, not a singular republic like in France, which you had after the French Revolution, or a nation. It was not a nation. Now people did speak in that language, even in the founding generation. You had nationalists. Uh, but they were in the minority. It's unfortunate that after the Constitution is ratified, you have the nationalists really take power, and they start pushing this nationalist agenda. Now, it's not codified until later, until you get into the 19th century, and it's the war that really uh, you know, makes this the language of America. You know, nobody talked about the American nation until um, uh, overall, you know, as, as the dominant theme until after the war in the 1860s and Reconstruction. And of course, we're getting up to the most important uh, years in the sesquicentennial of Reconstruction. Next year, uh, 2018, is 150 years since 1868, which really was the turning point in Reconstruction. And so we're going to try to do more with that also as we move forward. But um, 
the United States, as Yarborough says, will be better off without California, the rest of the United States. And California can go it alone. There's, there's nothing to say that California couldn't be uh, an independent country, uh, even if you add in Washington and Oregon, and people have talked about Nevada being part of that too. Um, well, I mean, that would be fine. Um, if, a, if a state, if the people of the state are looking to seek self-determination, then who are we to stop them? Now, I think the, the advocates of uh, secession in California have some things wrong. They don't have to have permission from the rest of the United States. There are some political science pointy heads out in California who think that's the case, but that's not true. Uh, if Basically, I mean, this is the American tradition that the people decide through convention. Now, I would say they'd have to call convention uh, that they want to leave the union well, they will be free to do so. And uh, that should be something that every American supports, um, whether it's California or Vermont or you know, South Carolina or North Dakota or Oklahoma. Who cares where the state is? If the people of the state want to leave, they have every right to do so as sovereign individuals in a sovereign state. Um, so this is something that I think is interesting because the question has never really been fully answered as to um, this particular process. Uh, war cannot settle a question, as we'll talk about in one of the other pieces. So on Tuesday, we ran a piece. It's actually an older piece from 1982, uh, but it's uh, entitled Jay of its Haley in the Mind of the South, and it was written by Guy Story Brown, who uh, just died um, It was last year, the year before. Uh, he was actually one of Emmy Bradford's uh, doctoral students, and uh, he died in 2015. And the introduction to this uh, by Clyde Wilson is actually in some ways better than the piece itself, but I think that the, the piece really does get to the heart of why J. Ebbets Haley is important. And uh, most people probably don't know who J. Ebbets Haley is, but he was a great historian from Texas, and he wrote Southwestern biographies and histories. And so a lot of times these things are considered to be Western, when in reality what they really are is Southern. And that's why Brown is relaying this mind of the South and attaching it back to J. Ebbets Haley. And so, uh, you know, Clyde Wilson introduces this, and he says very frankly, you know, we repeat, the West is only Western because it is Southern, because it bears the impress of the culture of the Old South rather than the Old North. That is why Oklahoma produces cowboys, world wildcatters, country music singers, writers and scholars, evangelists and outlaws, and Kansas produces wheat and an occasional communist. Uh, so this is the important thing. Uh, to, to understand the American tradition, you have to understand the Southern tradition. And this is why we said on this podcast over and over again, the South is America. It still is today. In fact, at our, uh, at our summer school, um, Dr. Livingston had a, had a talk entitled that, When the South Was America, and he stops it at 1861. But I would still say that we're, we're, we're falling short of what really is America. Uh, as we've seen in the 2016 election, the South, and of course with the West combined, and working class people in Rust Belt states, that's still America. Um, and this is why when Trump you know, had this campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, it, it resonated with a good part of the American population, uh, again, excluding California and New York, where people were saying, yeah, I mean, this idea of this cultural renewal is, is so important to most Americans, and, and a lot of that has to do with the South. So the South is America. The South really formulated what it meant to be uh, the, the West, 
And of course, a lot of those people, those working class people in places like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and Michigan uh, and even Pennsylvania, uh, but particularly in your, in your Midwestern states, a lot of those people migrated there, those working class people from, uh, from the South originally. So you have this very important cultural underpinning of the United States uh, that's distinctively Southern that shows that the South really is America. And um, he talks about, uh, Brown talks about that really in this piece uh, and, and what these cultural underpinnings pinnings are. Um, and uh, he talks about things like honor and how that was so important in the South and how that notion of honor carried out to the West. And so when you talk about these ranchers and these cowboys and these other people, and we look at that in Westerns and other things in American pop culture and how honor is so important. It's not a Western theme. That's a Southern theme that was brought West by Southerners. Uh, he talks about things like justice uh, and uh, this pursuit of, of uh, you know, leave us alone, this individualism that was so important. If you go out West uh, and you spend some time out there, uh, you, you're struck by the, the idea that it really is a separate country in some ways in that it's so far removed from the East. Now, it doesn't mean the culture wasn't brought from somewhere else, but this idea of leave us alone, and Southerners were pushing that more than anyone else, leave us alone, let us go our own way, self-determination, individualism. This is something that John Shelton Reed said, you know, was so important in the South and was the, the cultural tradition moving forward that the South could really influence the rest of the U.S., it was this rugged individualism. And the West was so important for that moving forward. And so uh, Brown talks about that, this leave-us-alone idea. You know, you're a couple of thousand miles removed from the East Coast, and you don't, even, you don't feel like you're part of that. Uh, you're just so far out there, and you want to be governed by yourselves, by, by the people around you, not by Washington, D.C. And I think that's, um, that's one of the important uh, elements that the South really brought to the West. Uh, and, um, you know, Clyde brought up in the introduction, it's why Owen Wister had a great uh, story about Wyoming that he called the Virginian. The cowboy was the Virginian because that culture of the Old South had been moving West and had been, uh, you know, rooted in the South, and now it was taking root in the West. Uh, and so he talks about, um, you know, how um, this, this struggle against progressivism was so important to the cowboy rancher and, and uh, how they were trying to resist those things uh, and, and how that was an important cultural theme in the West. So you have all these things going on in the West that are brought from the South and how that Western tradition, when you watch a Western movie or read a Western novel, how that really is just Southern. Uh, you wouldn't have had these things. I mean, Texas is Southern. You wouldn't have had these cultural traits without having the Southern tradition being brought there. And so this is why um, you should read these Western histories. And, you know, J. Abbott Haley has some great stuff. Uh, Charles Good his biography of Charles Goodnight is, is fantastic. And, but it really brings out this idea of, of Western cultural independence that was predicated by Southern cultural independence and moving West. And so... Um, I would encourage you to go out and read some Javits Haley, and of course read this piece if you haven't done so. It's quite long. It's uh, you know about five thousand words, so it's not a, a piece you're going to sit down and just whip through in about thirty minutes. Uh, it's going to take you a little time 
to get through it, but these are some of the things we're trying to do and bring out this this uh, richness of Southern culture and why it's so important for the rest of the United States. And I think this piece does that. And uh, Guy Story Brown did a fantastic job with that. Of course, being a student of Emmy Bradford, um, you're going to get that. Uh, now, on uh, Wednesday, we had our, tip, our uh, typical uh, Clyde Wilson uh, piece for the week. We always have that every Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, usually, depending on the length of the piece. But this was entitled A Tar Heel's Revenge. And uh, it's an older piece, too, 1982. But what he's talking about here is the importance of uh, North Carolina in the South and how there was this misconception really in the 80s, and I've still seen it to today, that uh, you know North Carolinians uh, deserted in large numbers and uh, during the war for Southern independence, and uh, you know they, they might have had the highest casualties, but they were also the greatest uh, cowards in the war, and so they were leaving in droves. And uh, Clyde references an article that came out in uh, the North Carolina Historical Review uh, in the early 80s that um, this desertion, quote-unquote, had to be looked at. It's much more nuanced than that. And uh, what you had, essentially, was uh, you know you had deserters and people who were AWOL. And uh, Kent Masherson-Brown talks about this quite a bit when he does his Civil War tours and other things. But, you know, a lot of Southern soldiers would simply leave and then come back because they had things to attend to at home. Uh, they had sick family members or their crops needed to be harvested or whatever it was, but they would come back. And so AWOL was different than desertion. And you got to remember that, and I've seen this before, people saying, well, you know, uh, so, uh, show me these soldiers or show me, you know, uh, these people in the South. Uh, you know, the South didn't have any regular army, so to speak. They had militia and uh, drilling and, and uh, you know, boot camp. You didn't have that in the South. You still had things like that a little bit in the North because they had the apparatus put in place uh, for a regular army. The South had to create this out of thin air. And so these men were just showing up, and that's how they were trained. And so you really didn't have a, you had a, you had a whole bunch of militia. Now, I know you still had that in the North, uh, but what constitutes a soldier is the question. Uh, is a soldier a, a simply one who who en, enlists and has to go and uh, you know drill and, and go through a type of a boot camp, or is a soldier one who's just there simply supporting the war effort? And I think if you look at the American uh, effort today, you have a large number of soldiers who don't do anything but uh, push a pen or supply soldiers. It takes uh, a large number of men and women now on the back end to keep one soldier in the field, and I think that's something we forget. Those people are still soldiers. Uh, they may not be out there fighting the enemy, but they're still soldiers. And so Clyde gets into this uh, you know, issue of you know, how important North Carolina soldiers were and how important Southerners still are uh, to the modern American military. You, know, you wouldn't have had uh, – the, the Southerners have served as a backbone in World War II and Vietnam. And even uh, – of course, this is written in 82, but moving forward into the 90s and the 2000s and how important Southern soldiers are – to the war effort in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the Gulf Wars. I mean, Southerners really have been the backbone of the American military, really since its inception. Um, you wouldn't have had uh, uh, the United States win the American War for Independence, for example, without the effort in the South. Uh, the war moved to the South late in the, in the later phases, and if the South uh, was not so resolute in its defense of in independence at that point, uh, the United States doesn't win independence. Um, and so the South has long been the most important component of the American military experience, and that is also cultural. Uh, you know, Southerners, and that you can look at uh, various uh, cultural traits and where these Southerners come from, you know, Celtic uh, peoples, but also these cavalier uh, men 
who deter- who were honorable and and uh, wanted to um, have glory on the battlefield or viewed uh, the the British idea of uh, you know limited government and individual rights. I mean, these things were important to Southerners, maybe more than any other section in the United States, and so they willingly fought for them uh, all throughout American history, even to this day. And so this is why the South is so important to the vitality of the United States. And, uh, you know, of course, there are exceptions to the rule, and there are great uh, Northerners who go out there and have these same traits and, and, and uh, you know, really defend those positions. But Southerners have been doing it in larger percentages than any other section in the U.S. And so this is what the, you know, somebody had questioned on Facebook, why call it Tar Heels Revenge? Well, that's what Clyde called the piece, but also to show that uh, North Carolinians were not just cowards and that the Southern effort would not have been uh, possible, or I should say the American effort would not have been possible without the Southern military effort all throughout the war um, and uh, all th- throughout all American wars. And so this is, uh, this is an important thing to understand in American history and also American military history. All right. On Thursday, we ran a piece entitled A State of Mind, and um, I'm sure people, you know, a lot of people maybe listen to this. The image at the top was a U.S. flag, and it's actually the Calpins flag. And I was just talking about the how important the South was to the American uh, uh, movement for independence in the 1770s. And that Calpins flag, this was flown at the Battle of Calpins, which was such an important battle in the American War for Independence. And, um, you know, that is a Southern flag. Uh, and so, you know, we forget that, uh, that Southerners were the backbone, really, of this American War for Independence, too. I mean, without Richard Henry Lee, as uh, John Marcourt uh, talks about, without Rich Hen- Richard Henry Lee, uh, you don't have the call for independence in 1776. That was June, you know, the month before we had the Declaration. Without Thomas Jefferson, right, writing the Declaration, here's the South being so important. Without George Washington leading the Continental Army, without people like Francis Marion and Thomas Sumter and... Uh, you know, others uh, in the South. You don't have independence because they were able to knock out Cornwallis. And so this is so important, you know, without uh, moving forward, without James Madison, uh, you know, and, and uh, maybe maybe the Constitution doesn't happen. Uh, you know, I think Madison is incorrectly you know, called the father of the Constitution, but he was an important actor. And, of course, part of the Federalist Essays. And you had uh, not just the Federalist Essays, but um, you had many Southerners who were promoting the Constitution uh, during the ratification process. And, and these uh, friends of the Constitution were much more important probably than, than the Federalist essays themselves. So you had this real push coming from the South and determining what the United States was going to be like. And then, of course, moving forward, you had Southerners promoting the uh, Virginia-Kentucky resolutions and how those were picked up around the United States. You had this idea of state interposition in South Carolina, but that was not just, um, you know, this was not just a Southern idea. Northern, Northerners also pushed the idea of nullification, too. Uh, even nationalists, people like Henry Clay and uh, John Marshall, these people were Southerners, but they had a unique bent to their nationalism. And, and I'll talk about that in the next piece. You know, Andrew Jackson, Southerner. So all this piece really gets into how important the South was to American political history. And um, what we can gain from that moving forward in 2017 as we look at a new administration coming into the United States, the Donald Trump administration, and what uh, Jack says is that 
one thing maybe we can get out of this, the Southern tradition and how important this is, is that what we need is an idea of federalism to come back to the forefront. We need to, even though we have our guy in the executive mansion, and this is what a lot of people think, well, we got our guy there now. So uh, well, let's, let's start talking about nationalism again. But this is very, very dangerous. What we really need is for the Trump administration to still promote federalism because this is better for the union as a whole. It's better for the leftists. You know, if California could could simply operate its government the way it wants, and it does. I mean, people don't realize that the California does. They could have their liberal utopia in California or New York or Massachusetts, and they don't have to worry about what happens in Alabama or South Carolina. What we really need to be talking about here is, look, defending your hearth and home, your kith and kin, still needs to be the important part of American federalism. We don't need to be talking about nationalism. We need to be talking about federalism. If something could come out of this that could make that possible, uh, that would be a victory for the Trump administration. It's not that uh, you know a lot of people in the South and the West and the Rust Belt won't support what Trump is doing, but we need to be uh, sympathetic to the left and their uh, you know their in their defeat and saying, look, yeah, we understand you lost. We're not going to punish you for it. Uh, what we want you to do is understand that, you know, when you lose, if you put into place this very strong central authority, when you lose, it can have dr- dramatic and, uh, you know, disastrous consequences for you, for you and your states, because you've put this into effect. And so let's start talking about federalism. Let's start talking about the things that make America great, which is your hearth and home. This is where I've talked about on my own podcast, things like think locally, act locally. Still focus on the home, focus on your community, focus on your state, because that won't change no matter who's in the executive branch. That won't change. You have to still talk about those things. Uh, and instead of talking about a nation, and I know Jack, Jack mentions that term, what we need to be talking about is federalism as we move forward into 2017, 18, 19, 20 in early 21, these next four years. Let's talk about those things. Uh, just because Trump won doesn't mean we have to stop talking about that stuff. And I think that uh, if we have that perspective moving forward, it doesn't matter who, it really shouldn't matter who's in the executive branch. It should matter who's in your, uh, at your mayor of your town or who's, uh, who's on your county commission or uh, who's in the governor's seat in your state. Those are the things that really matter. And also, it really matters you know, who's leading your family and what your position is on education at home and, and church and uh, your, your financial stability and viability at home. These are the things that matter. If you can do these things at home, it really doesn't matter who's in the executive branch really doesn't matter who's in Congress. And I think as we've talked about in this podcast, this is why Americans are angry. They're angry because they're not really represented. And so maybe the best we can get out of Trump is if people can start pushing that message and there's a sympathetic ear to it in Washington, D.C. Maybe we can see some real change moving forward. And this brings us to the last piece, which was written by yours truly. It's actually a book review, and the book was uh, Philip Pendleton Barber and Jacksonian America, an Old Republican in King Andrew's Court, 
was published this past year by uh, the University of Alabama Press, and it was written by a man named William Belko. And Belko is a professional historian. He used to teach at University of West Florida. Now he heads up um, a nonprofit group in Missouri. Uh, but this is a wonderful piece because what it really shows, you know, Philip Pendleton Barber is one of these forgotten people in uh, American history. Uh, he was a quintessential Virginian, old Republican, served on the Supreme Court. He, in fact, was one of the best Supreme Court justices we've had. I served in Congress for a number of years, uh, was considered uh, for vice president at one point. Um, and uh, Barber uh, was really an example of what these old Republicans believe. And I think Belko does a wonderful job in bringing that out. In fact, he says from the beginning, uh, quote, Barber's political career undeniably demonstrates that subjects of an economic nature rather than the efficacy and spread of slavery, dominated, determined, and shaped the great political battles and partisan attachments during the formative years of Jacksonian America. So he's saying, look, this, this defense of the Constitution, of opposition to the bank and federally funded internal improvements and all these things, tariffs, this was not some veiled defense of slavery. No, no, no. This was a principled defense of real federalism and what the United States should be and what it had been from the founding forward. Um, and how important, you know, Barber was to this, uh, this push in the early federal period to rein in federal spending. Uh, and, you know, Barber warned thing, uh, about things like economic and judicial nationalism, which would threaten American liberty. He was warning about these things because he was principled. And he was also Southern, as Belko points out. You know, Barber made fun of New Englanders. He made fun of Daniel Webster. Uh, he understood who he was and where he was from. But slavery was not the root of his, of his Southern support for states' rights uh, in the early antebellum period. In fact, he said, look, we shouldn't even talk about slavery in Congress because it's not an enumerated power. This is silly. Let's talk about things we can take care of and not a municipal. He called it a municipal power, not a municipal power. Those are things for the states. Even in the North, they're things for the states. Now, what's interesting is Barber believed that the Congress could actually legislate for slavery in the territories but not in the states, which is why he was so much against the introduction of Missouri and Congress meddling over that issue in Missouri itself. This is an issue for Missouri, just like it would be for Michigan or anywhere else and these new states that were being brought into the Union. Uh, later on. Uh, but um, he does uh, you know, think that Congress can legislate for slavery. Now, of course, uh, in the territories, now, of course, many Southerners would disagree, saying that, look, that's not even enumerated power in Article I, Section 8 either. It doesn't say they can legislate for slavery anywhere in the Constitution. So if they can't legislate for it, for it anywhere, then you can't legislate for it in the territories. But there are three points that I made uh, after reading this book and, and wanting people to understand, first, uh, Barber was a conservative who wished to, as he said in 1830 speech, look at things as they are. And I, and I titled the, the piece that because I think that's very important for us to understand. Conservatives look at things as they are, and they have always done that. They don't have some type of illusion about what America should be. It's about things as they are, and even as they look at things uh, as they are, and they look at things, you know, Southerners consciously looked at America as a great jewel to be used, and there was uh, richness to be had. Uh, they still looked at things as they were culturally, and I th they're not innovators. And I think that's the important thing to get out of someone like Barber. 
Uh, second, uh, Barber's conservatism was predicated by his commitment to the old Virginia order and the necessary or necessity of permanence, meaning land as opposed to personal property. And so permanent things, this is you know something that Bradford talked about, the permanent things. Russell Kirk talked about it. What were those things? And that has to be property, kith and kin, who you are. You know, uh, Barber had a plantation called Frescati, which is still there, uh, and it was a wonderful place. Uh, and um, that's that's what his country was. It was Frescati. It wasn't it wasn't the United States. And I mean, going out from that, it was Virginia. And last, Barber was a Republican, uh, a Unionist of the old Republican stripe. Um, you know, he he believed that the Union was important. Uh, but he also thought that if the union was not going to work, then the state should just secede. He didn't really believe in nullification because he thought that that was silly. Just leave the union. If there was a conflict between the states and the general government of a political question, then you needed to leave. So understanding Barber is very important for understanding American history. And as I say here, you know, sectionalism is not really sectionalism in the in the in the South and. Uh, really what it was is unionism in the entire time. Calhoun always said he was a unionist. What, what you really had was northern sectionalism disguised as nationalism creating problems. We flipped history on its head, and we think that nationalism was always the key, but really was this federalism. As the nationalists started taking over, this is where the rub came. And that nationalism really was nothing else than Yankee imperialism. It was Yankee sectionalism that was trying to dominate, and southerners were saying, you can't do that. So we have this wonderful book that, I mean, nobody's reading. Uh, you know, it, it has um, it had no reviews on Amazon, but yet you've got uh, these other books. Uh, you know, there was a, one that we'll be reviewing in the future on um, by this twit from uh, from Princeton, and uh, it's a book published by Harvard University Press. But it's on uh, Southern influence in American foreign policy. And it has a number of views because why? Because it talks about how you know racist and vicious the South was and how awful it was. So anytime you have a book that doesn't have that, well, nobody pays attention to it. And so you should go out and read this. It's expensive. You got to pay sixty bucks for the thing on uh, on Amazon because it's an act from an academic press. But it's an excellent book. Or maybe your library can get it and you can read it. It's very very good. And Belko has done a wonderful job uh, bringing out Philip Pendleton Barber and how important he actually was uh, to the American experience. Okay, so that's it for this week uh, at the Abbeville Institute. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. And until next time, good day. Mm-hmm.